Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, Walk in the Light, we are going through the first epistle of John and challenging one another to focus on Jesus. Today's speaker is teaching minister, Tim Peace. Well, we've come to a time in our service where we're going to take communion together, and I wanted to share a passage from the Gospel of Luke before I asked our friends to come down with the trays. It says, uh, starting in Luke 22, verse 14, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. We take communion each Sunday morning when we gather together. First and foremost, because Jesus said to do this in remembrance of him. But we also remember that the Jesus that we worship, the God whom we serve, came in the flesh, walked on this earth, talked and taught the people around him. And he willingly gave up his life. His body was physically nailed to a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. And so when we say we remember Jesus by taking communion, that's what we remember. The Jesus of scripture, the Jesus that came in the flesh. So I wanted to start out with a uh, fun little story from the Gospel of John, since we're in 1 John. One day, Jesus is teaching his disciples, um, and that's disciples beyond just the 12 that are closest to him. He's teaching a whole slew of disciples that have been following him around. And as he's in dialogue with them, they kind of start to grumble. They start to ask questions like, who can accept this guy's teachings? They're really challenging. Now, for most of us that, you know, don't like to ruffle feathers, you know, we, we might hear something like that and try to cushion the blow a little bit. But not Jesus. Jesus makes matters worse because after they've been asking these questions about Jesus' teaching... He says this in verse 61 of chapter 6. He says, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Now he says this because he had just told them that in order to be with him, and to believe in him, they must eat his flesh 
and drink his blood. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I'm not into cannibalism. Anyone else? Anyone else? We won't, actually, we will tell if you're into it. So, um, and here's the thing about this. Jesus doesn't stop and say, well, I'm referring to the, the bread and the wine. Or does it say, you know, this is just symbolic of my body. Now, if you read further in the Gospel of John, you'll find out that the scene which Matthew, Mark, and Luke normally um, start to tell us about the communion moment, which we just celebrated, John instead uh, shows that Jesus washes his disciples' feet instead. And so this passage here serves as a sort of communion teaching, except Jesus just gives the blunt, eat my flesh and drink my blood teaching to the people. And yes, it offends them. And guess what? Almost all of his disciples that were standing there following him around turn and go back home. Because they're like, this guy is a bit of a loony. So Jesus turns in John chapter 6, verses 67 through 69 to his 12 that are remaining there with him. And he asks this. He says, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? That's a pretty bold statement, given the fact that Jesus didn't qualify any of the crazy teachings that he has laid out before his followers that turn most of them in the other direction. But it's also a question that I want us to keep in our minds this morning as we continue and conclude our series called Walk in the Light, which has been a study through 1 John. Lord, to whom shall we go? I want us to keep that in our minds because It's a question that many of us should be asking and should take stock in in the same way Peter and the rest of the 12 clearly did when they were around Jesus. Because what John says here brings us full circle in this series. When we started out in week one, we learned in 1 John chapter one that to walk in the light meant to be open to God and to be exposed to God. In week two, we learned that by walking in the light, we are called to reflect the light. If you remember, Didi used the prism imagery of shining the light out. And the way to shine the light, the way to walk in the light is to love others. Last week in 1 John chapter three, Jesus, or Didi talked about Jesus' words to abide in him. And that to abide in Jesus means to practice his teaching. And so this week in 1 John 4, we have to come face to face with whether or not Jesus' teaching is worth practicing and whether Jesus himself is worth believing. 
So I want you to follow along with me in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is what John writes. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but evaluate whether the spirits are from God, because many false prophets are going out into the world. By this, you all know the Spirit of God. Every person that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh reflects the Spirit of God. Every person that does not confess Jesus demonstrates a spirit which is not from God. And this is the Antichrist, which you all heard is coming and now is in the world already. You, little children, are from God, and all of you have overcome them because greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, and so they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We, however, are from God. The one who knows God listens to us, and the one who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of delusion. There's a couple things here. I'm going to be a Greek geek for a moment. There's a couple things in this passage that we should be aware of. There's, there's two words that John uses here that tend to trip us up a lot, especially as we're reading through our English translations and trying to grasp exactly what he's saying. The first one is a Greek word, pneuma, which is the word we use for spirit. Now, Typically speaking, in an English sense, we always translate pneuma to spirit. But pneuma in the New Testament has like six different variations on what's being talked about when we're thinking about spirit. And John, being somewhat convoluted, decides to bring like three of them all into one here. And so in a lot of our English translations, instead of saying it the way that we just read it, it literally says, by this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, or every spirit that does not confess, confess Jesus. But here's the thing. In New Testament theology, there is one spirit from God, and that is the Holy Spirit, the third being of the Trinity. One God and three. So there's only one spirit. And yet there are many evil spirits out there. And so John, what he's saying is that we have to test the spirits, meaning we have to test our spirit. And we have to test the spirit of others. Are they influenced by God, the Holy Spirit, or are they influenced by the other spirits? Now there's another word that comes up here that's really fun for everyone. It's a Greek word, antichristos. What's that sound like? Oh, yeah, antichrist, right? Now, here's the thing about that word. We think about being anti-something, and so we think about being adversarial, against something. And so we, we pair that word up to, with antichrist, and we think about being adversarial or against Christ. But did you know that that little Greek word, anti, actually means instead of or in place of. So when John uses this, and he's already used it once in chapter 2, verse 18, 
He's talking about many antichrists, not just one. And he's talking about people that are teaching those in the church to believe in someone or something in place of Jesus. And so we have to ask, well, what is it that these antichrists are teaching? Well, Didi brought it up last week. He talked about John dealing with the problem of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism started to creep up and influence the church at the time that John's writing. And Gnosticism taught that the material world and the God of the Old Testament that created everything is evil. But the spirit world, that's good. And therefore, if Jesus is good, Jesus can't possibly come in the flesh. And if Jesus can't come in the flesh, Jesus didn't go to the cross. Because no spirit Jesus in Gnostic thought could ever be crucified. And so what was happening is the Gnostics were coming in and persuading Christian people to believe in a counterfeit Jesus. A Jesus that was only spirit, a Jesus that wasn't born of a virgin, that didn't walk on this earth, that didn't teach his followers, that didn't disciple people, that didn't hand himself over to be crucified, that didn't die on a cross and be laid in a tomb, and that certainly didn't physically and bodily raise from the dead. See, that Jesus I just described is the traditional teaching of the church about the real Jesus. And the Gnostics were telling Christians to leave the fold and believe in this counterfeit Jesus. And you know the thing about the Gnostic Jesus? He's flimsy, he's safe, and he hasn't done anything, and he doesn't call us to do anything. He's a counterfeit. He's a fraud. And so when we come to 1 John chapter 4, what John is arguing and what he's been building up to in this entire letter is this. Church, and this is what we have in our bulletins this week, those that walk in the light believe in the Jesus of Scripture, the real Jesus, the Jesus who came in the flesh. Those, however, who walk in the darkness, they believe in a Jesus of their own or someone else's making. See, I'm going to guess that nobody in this room has dabbled in Gnosticism. Am I missing anybody? Anyone into Gnosticism? No, I didn't think so. But you know the problem, though, is there are counterfeit Jesuses everywhere. Everywhere. We hear about them all the time. In fact, we ourselves can be susceptible to falling trap for a counterfeit Jesus. And so this morning, 
I want us, instead of falling trapped to the counterfeit Jesuses of the world, to let God come into our hearts and pull us to the real Jesus, the Jesus that we find described in the scriptures. And so I wanted to show you a few ways that this counterfeit Jesus competes with the real Jesus. Because the truth is, if you want the real Jesus, if you want Jesus came in the flesh, if you want to adhere to John's calling, then you've got to know the real Jesus. And the only place to find him is in Scripture. But the problem is, the real Jesus, we love what he offers us. Salvation's great, right? But the stuff he calls us to, that messes with our stuff. See, Jesus didn't stop messing with people's stuff just when his disciples walked away in John chapter 6 because he said something that they couldn't stomach. No, no pun intended, that's another cannibal joke, sorry. No, he never stopped messing with them. There's something to unsettle every single person from the mouth of Jesus. And I just want to show you three of them this morning. The last one happens to be one that really gets me. So what's the first one here? Well, it's in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 12. It says this, it says, Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful, Jesus, for a man to divorce his wife? Well, what did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote, the, wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And it says later that when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, so they were a bit perplexed. And he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife marries another woman, and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. See, Jesus took something that the Pharisees had permission for, and made it more strict. And then, when his disciples later asked him, because they were good Jewish people brought up under the Pharisees and the teachings of the law, and were confused by Jesus' strictness, he doesn't make it any easier on them. In fact, not only does he say, do not divorce, but if you do, you commit adultery. Now, there are a couple things going on from an ethical and moral standpoint here. First of all, did you know in that culture, in this patriarchal society that Jesus was teaching in, that if a woman was left unmarried, if her husband left or her father died, she was exposed to a society that was not going to support her and in which she could not find support? Did you notice that the Pharisees didn't ask Jesus if it was permissible for a woman to divorce her husband? No, no, no. They said, is it permissible for a man 
to divorce and send her away. So the first thing is, in this culture, Jesus levels the playing field. He's all about protecting the person that the culture doesn't want to protect. But then if you're nodding along and thinking, well, that's good, guess what else? Jesus has got a pretty strict sexual ethic here. And he doesn't budge on it. Marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman, and guess what? Nobody should separate them if they get married. So here's the thing. If your Jesus, if your Jesus doesn't look out for the person that culture steps upon, and if your Jesus doesn't want to uphold godly sexual ethic, guess what? You've got a counterfeit Jesus. And John's talking to you. How about this one? Because this is, this just gets fun every time you run into Jesus. He's just messing with us. He one point teaches this. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And the king will reply, or then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you. He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the, one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. If your Jesus helps only those who help themselves, which, by the way, is a quote that you won't find in this book. You have, my friends, a counterfeit Jesus. John has something to say to you. 
believe in the one who came in the flesh. You see, the thing is, the reason that this is so hard is because we live in an individualistic culture where we make our own moral compass and we follow our own tribe. And actually, we're so tethered to our own tribe that the idea of breaking away for the Jesus of Scripture is kind of daunting. Because we don't want to be booted. We don't want to be sneered at. We don't want to be told that we are backtracking on our people. But the thing is, is that Jesus calls us to love some people that our tribe won't touch with a 10-foot pole. But if we want Jesus who came in the flesh, we leave the tribe and we run and cling to Jesus. Some of our tribes will tell us that we get to define love, not God. We get to define it as whatever makes us feel good. Well, if your tribe tells you that, you need to run from your tribe and go to Jesus and cling to him. Because I've got news for you. Jesus isn't on the left. Jesus isn't on the right. Jesus isn't even in the center. Jesus is actually above all because he's the king of kings. And he's the only fixed point that matters in this world. But the problem though is, is it's so easy to say I love Jesus because everybody loves Jesus. Even atheists love Jesus. But oftentimes the Jesus we love isn't the Jesus of Scripture, it's the counterfeit we've made up in our brains. I told you I'd give you a third one. This is one I struggle with. You might be surprised that a minister would struggle with this one. But, you know, one day in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. That sounds nice. That is a dangerous thing to ask Jesus to teach. Because this is what he says. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name or holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. And in the Gospel of Matthew rendition, after he says, give us each day, or or after he says, your kingdom come, it also says, your will be done. Now, when I started thinking about this sermon this week, Didi uh, and I were having lunch one day, and he said, you know, he goes, I think the issue with this passage and the issue for people is trust. Trust. Putting our trust in the Jesus of Scripture is a scary thing. And when Jesus' disciples ask him how to pray, when you slow down to read line by line what he is teaching them to pray for, first of all, it starts with God first, not me I know sometimes when I pray, I have a laundry list of stuff. 
And none of it's probably bad. I'm probably praying for friends, family, things I'm concerned about. But Jesus points us in our prayer to go to God first and to honor God first, to praise God in our prayer first. And sometimes that's not on the forefront of my mind. I'm going to be real. Then he says, your kingdom come, and like I said, in Matthew it says, your will be done. Now that is the scary part of this prayer. Do you really want his will to be done? Do you? Because since Jesus is God in the flesh, all that stuff we read about that Jesus says and does, that's God's will being done. Do we want that messing and getting in the way of our stuff, our desires, our needs, our wants? I'll tell you, most of the time, I don't. I wake up some days and I got a lot planned. And I don't need God stepping in and messing with my plans. You know? There's sports to watch. There's there's pretty much just sports to watch these days. Uh, And that's not a bad thing. But do I really want God's will to be done in my life? Or do I want God to conform to my will? Because oftentimes when I start off with the things I want, that laundry list, I'm not asking for God's will to be done. I'm asking for my will to be done and for him to bless it. Or how about give us each day our daily bread? You know, I'm more confident in my ability because we live in a, a, a culture in which it's pretty easy to take care of our own stuff. I'm more confident in my ability to give me what I need than, than God. Hmm. Forgive us our sins For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now, we all want forgiveness of sins. I'm not so sure we want to forgive the sins of other people all the time. Because I don't know if you live in this world too, but people do some messed up stuff. People can be hurtful. We live in a fallen, broken world. Do we really want God to forgive others as he forgives us? Sometimes I want God to forgive me and be gone with the other people. That's the last one. Lead us not into temptation. Hmm. Sometimes I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. (laughs) But yet, when I look at this prayer line by line, that his disciples asked him to teach them, this prayer isn't just a religious exercise. It's a call to God to own everything in our life and to be our guidepost for how we live our lives. And that, my friends, is a dangerous place. But if you, like me, struggle with that prayer, we all need to adhere to the words of John. So I want to come back to that question that Peter asked. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah. 
but a lot of what he has is going to ruffle our feathers. And to every other one of the disciples except the 12 that stood there, they asked, Lord, to whom shall we go? And they came up with a different answer. But God doesn't want you to have a counterfeit Jesus. And here's why. The real Jesus will mess with your stuff. But the real Jesus, as Peter observed, will give you life that no other counterfeit Jesus could ever possibly give you. Because the counterfeit Jesus that we make up doesn't die on a cross for you. The counterfeit Jesus that we make up isn't raised from the dead, overcoming death and giving us hope that death isn't the end note of our lives. There is much to lose when we come to the real Jesus, but there is everything to gain. So test the Spirit. Test not only those that are teaching you all the counterfeit Jesus things in the world, but test your own. Test your own. Because to walk in the light means that you will come to the Jesus of Scripture and give your life to him because he already gave his life for you. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for being so good and so gracious to us. And um, it's my prayer for each and every one of us in this room that, um, that we'll come to, to know you for who you truly are. That rather than sidestepping the things that make us uncomfortable, the things that ruffle our feathers, that instead we'll wrestle with them. And God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the fact that you don't force us to get it all right, right out of the gate to never stumble, to never fail, but that you and your spirit are always there to lend us a hand to pick us up and to help us to keep walking with you. So I pray, God, that because we have that hope in you, I pray that we will be so emboldened by your spirit that we will come to know the Jesus of Scripture and that we will serve him and him only and that we will allow you to chisel out all of the counterfeit Jesuses that want to run the show for us. Because you are the one that have, has the words of life. And we just thank you for being so good and so gracious to us. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.